Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You know, John, I'm looking at Uber today, uh, in part because they're raising more money because they're burning through cash very quickly. And of course, uh, mainly because they announced that they are going to halt their self-driving test after a fatality. And here to talk with us uh, about that and some of the implications is Richard Windsor, uh, Radio Free Mobile founder. Uh, So Richard, Tell us why there was a fatality uh, when autonomous driving was supposed to be safer, no? Yeah, I mean, I mean let's, let's get, I mean, the the important stuff out of the way is, I mean, the first thing I think to bear in mind is, is that the circumstance of this incident were, sorry, was that um, if there had just been a regular driver, uh, in exactly the same circumstances, there is almost no doubt whatsoever that the pedestrian probably would have also have been killed. So um, it doesn't look like it was a fault of the autonomous driving system. But the main point I think to bear in mind here is, that, you know, with over 40,000 deaths on U.S. roads every year, one of the major aims of autonomous driving is to make it much safer. So arguably, in this case, the machine needs to be much better than the human. I love that. Uh, Self-driving cars, they're just like us. Uh, So what's the road ahead? I mean, honestly, this has been a very controversial path, and a lot of people were, were sort of counting on this experiment to save Uber. Meanwhile, it is burning through cash and is raising $1.5 billion in the loan market right now. Um, is this a huge setback for them, or is it just a little bit of bad PR uh, among a stream of bad PR that just seems never-ending for Uber? Okay, I think firstly, again, to be fair to Uber, I think if this had been a Waymo vehicle, I think the outcome would have been exactly the same. Um, you know, Waymo being, you know, the best company at autonomous driving. When it comes to Uber itself, you need to separate it into long term and short term. The long term, yeah, this is this is a major problem because in the long term, Uber's future is probably going to be dominated by autonomous driving, which means the company needs to be very good at it to survive. At the moment, they're not. This is another setback. That's a problem. The short term is something completely different, which is that uh, what Uber represents today is a marketplace where people come to buy and sell things, e.g. drivers selling their services and passengers buying the services of the drivers. It's a marketplace. And in marketplaces, dominance is incredibly important for profitability. And this is the key problem that Uber had last year. It lost a lot of market share to Lyft last year and is right at the point where it may lose its dominance position in the United States, which would have substantial implications for its ability to generate cash. Richard, speaking of um, dominant positions, let's talk about Facebook. Where's Mark Zuckerberg? You got me. I'm afraid I have no idea. Apologies. What is it? Day four? Day four and we haven't heard from the top executives at Facebook. It is remarkable how how bad they are at addressing this situation yeah it is a problem and don't don't forget you know think about you know think about how they grew up think about how silicon valley operates they are you know they've always had this mindset of move very quickly and allow things to break unfortunately every now and again when you break something it's far worse than you could have anticipated and i think to be honest with you the bigger question is is where is Cheryl Sandberg because Cheryl is much more the operation level head person inside this organization so i would have 
expected, um, you know, Cheryl to have started to move to contain this problem. Are they making matters worse at the moment, Richard? Um, I, mean, I think a little bit, yes. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it. I think this highlights a much wider problem. And this problem is that, in general, consumers seem to have the impression that the likes of Google and Facebook are free. And actually, they're not, and they never have been. The issue is, when it comes down to it, in reality, the consumer either pays for Facebook and Google services with personal data, or you pay with cash. That is the way it is. And so I think when it comes to privacy, there's going to come a point when these companies have to turn around to their consumers and say, be clear, is you're paying for this service with personal data, you need to allow us to track you, or we're going to have to charge you a certain amount of money per month. Yeah, but Richard, uh, is that going to be an aha moment that causes Facebook and other tech companies to lose clients? Um, well, yet again, the question is, is uh, you know, again, uh, the, the real question is, who are the clients of these companies? Because it certainly isn't the users. The way I think about it is, sadly, the users, you and me, we're the product. The customers are the advertisers because these are the guys who generate the money. Now, I think my, I think this is going to work is, particularly, I think uh, GDPR in Europe is a good catalyst for this, is it increases, massive increase in regulatory pressure. We'll put the put these companies in the position where they have to be upfront about something they've kept quite quiet for a long time, which is, look, if you want this service to be free, we need to have access to your personal data. If you don't like that, yeah. fine, but you need to pay us. NYU professor Scott Galloway, um, Richard, has been very outspoken on all of this, and he, he wrote an Esquire earlier this year, and I'm going to quote him. If you're a country club mm-hmm. with a beach or a pool, it's more profitable in the short run not to have lifeguards. There are risks to that business model, as there are to Facebook's dependence on mainly algorithmic moderation, but it saves a lot of money. Um, they've saved a lot of money. They've made a lot of money. Are we now at an inflection point where they're going to have to start spending a whole lot more money on people and headcount at Facebook? In fact, we're already there. Um, in the research that Radio Free Mobile has done, we actually highlighted the fact that Facebook, when it comes to artificial intelligence and algorithmic moderation, they are the worst pretty much out there today. And this is why they have such a significant fake news problem. Um, and they've already signaled this. You know, the company said, I think, Q3 uh, last year, they were going to recruit 10,000 more people, which basically means by the middle of this year, Facebook is going to have more moderators than it has in revenue generating or product development roles. And this is why revenues might do 20% this year, but operating expenditure is going to go up 40 to 60%, giving a significant impact on profitability going forward. This problem has already arrived. Richard, from your perspective, do you think that the sell-off in Facebook shares and sort of the sympathy sell-off in other tech shares has gone too far? Uh, great question. I mean, I'm a little bit more cautious on Facebook because of this deterioration in um, operating performance in you know this year. In general, I'm, I've, I have been a little bit more cautious uh, on these stocks simply because they have run very far. Valuations are now assuming an awful lot, which is why from an investment perspective, um, you know, I've been preferring perhaps those in China, particularly Baidu, which is arguably one of the cheapest artificial intelligence investments you can make, or even Tencent, because in the Chinese market, there's still some distance to go. Richard Wins, it's been great to catch up with you. A Radio Free Mobile founder joining us on the phone from Dubai.
Well, Facebook uh, shares are declining in pre-trade activity. And the question is, are traders going to come in and buy this dip? Would you, John? Would I buy the dip? Yeah, the like minor, minor, tiny bit dip. What, the, like the, the move lower by about 1%? <laughs> yeah, is this enough of a dip for you? I, I thought it was interesting that credit held up so well. Yeah, well, let's let's find out what Brian thinks. Brian Levitt, Oppenheimer Funds senior investment strategist, uh, joining us now. Brian, are you uh, are you recommending that your clients go in and, and buy the the slight, or, or you know, perhaps it'll be a massive one point eight percent sell off yesterday? In <laughs> yeah, I, I think that. I mean, I I always advise investors to kind of turn down the volume on days like on, on days like yesterday. Thanks, Brian. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Brian Levitt joining us, yeah. Oppenheimer Fund senior investment strategist. He'll be We're, back one uh, day soon. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there, there's, um, you know, there's a, a confluence of factors weighing on the market right now. I don't think that this is the end of this long-term bull market. It's, um, you know, we're dealing with uncertainty around trade, uncertainty with regulation in the technology sector, uncertainty with around monetary policy, and, and we haven't had that in a while. So, 2017 was a pretty benign year, and a correction was to be expected, and. You you know, typically these corrections come. We had one in February. They test bottoms. It takes some time. To be clear, this wasn't long- a correction, right? What's that? <laughs> this doesn't count as a correction still, right? Well, not this one, but okay. I think the one in February could count as a correction. And um, and so for long-term investors, um, I suspect this cycle has room to run. For the traders, I'll let them decide whether they're you know, buying these bottoms, you know, this 1.8% decline. But yeah. the long-term investors should be more cautious. Uh, once the yield curve inverts and credit spreads blow out, and we're not seeing that. 2017, a lot of conversations about the lack of volatility at the index level, but low, below the index, Brian, we saw this continued rotation from value to growth, from growth to value. If we continue to see tech come under pressure in the United States with calls for regulation and calls for new taxes, where do you see the leadership coming from in this market? Well, I still think it's going to be an environment where you want to own the the sectors that are exposed to global growth. And, you know, technology is going to be a part of that, um, although I agree regulation could weigh on part of the part of the sector. I think it's in industrials. I think it's um, materials. It's it's the type of names that are going to benefit from a decent growth environment around the world, um, some pressure on the U.S. dollar, and um, but a... I don't think that we're heading to an environment where the true value-oriented names become the big outperformers. I think you would need a significant catalyst for that. I think some suspected that the tax bill could be that, but we realize that the stimulus on the fiscal side is somewhat being offset or is being offset by monetary tightening. Brian, if we just think about the G20 communique that comes out later this week as a PR statement for global stability, the PR for global stability is not too great at the moment. Reports here in the United States that the president is said to be planning tariffs of up to $60 billion, fresh tariffs on Chinese imports. How is the PR around this global synchronized growth story? Well, I think it's. I, I think that we need to watch and see um, what could disrupt it. Um, the these the, we've been saying for some time the only thing that will curtail this cycle is a policy mistake somewhere in the world, whether that's on the monetary side in the U.S., Europe, or China, or whether that's through some sort of a, um, beginning of of a, of a trade battle around the world. I think that could change 
the calculus on this. So, um, you know, we're, we're longer in this cycle. I don't believe it ends um, barring a major mistake. If we see something that's too forceful on the monetary side or the yeah. trade side, then we need to adjust our expectations. So, Brian, given that, uh, what are you recommending that clients do with their money? In other words, how much allocation to stocks, bonds, cash? Well, we've we've continued to believe that equities are the asset class of choice. I, I, I will like equities in this environment until I see a significantly flatter yield curve, not not seventy five basis points, significantly flatter, um, and I see either, uh, either a, a an incredibly weak dollar, which brings forward the Fed, or an incredibly strong dollar, which signals the flight to quality. I don't believe we're there yet. So. For investors looking for growth, um, to grow their assets, we continue to think equities are the asset class of choice. We favor the U.S. cyclical names that are benefiting from improving growth around the world. We favor the emerging markets, yeah. um, the, the backdrop for the emerging markets, barring too tight or too significant of, of, a, of a trade battle, yeah. um, is, is quite good. On the bond side, it's harder, although you know yields on investment grade are, are um, at least on treasuries, are better than they've been. Yeah. We still like floating rate. And I would say look to the emerging markets, to right. sovereign and corporate bonds. Yeah. Uh, real yields look quite attractive. Brian Levitt, thank you so much for joining us. Brian Levitt of Oppenheimer Funds, the senior investment strategist there, sounding very sanguine. The White House is said to be planning to impose tariffs worth as much as $60 billion on Chinese products as an outcome, one outcome, of an investigation by the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Those tariffs could come as soon as this week. I want to bring in Diana Choileva. She is Enodo Economics Chief Economist. Diana, it's great to have you with us on the program. $60 billion worth of tariffs. Does that move the dial and does that move us any closer to the risk that things could get a bit ugly for international trade? Yes, it does. And even though over the course of this year, China will try to mitigate the damage and will engage in damage control, certainly before the November elections in the US, further down the line, we are looking at a full-blown trade war. Really? How do we get there? Look, over the last 20 years, ever since China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, the globalized economy as we have it has been all about incorporating China. Yeah. But it was on the premise that the Chinese were converging to the Western liberal free market model, maybe not the politics, but certainly the economics. And they have now stated very clearly that they have no intention to do so. They are going to pursue their own model, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And as it is, this clash between these two very different systems is not working out. The global financial crisis was a result of that. The years of weak growth since nearly 10 years now have been a result of that. So there's no way unless one or the other system converges that we can live in the world of today. So Diana, how much does that reduce global growth? For which time period? Are you asking me? Are we talking about the next 10 years or are well, we looking when, at what's going to happen this year? When, what, when does it start to matter? It will start to matter already because trade war 
is one of the key risks for financial markets this year. But in terms of growth, actually 2018 could well turn out to be an okay year. China itself is likely to surprise on the upside in the first half of the year because outside of, if you'd like, the headwinds from the external side, yeah. they have been a, doing a remarkable job on um, getting uh, consumer spending going there. So there's been a genuine rebalancing in the economy that has some way to go. We can talk about the rebalancing of the Chinese economy um, shortly. I want to find out whether there is an approach from the rest of the world that could force China's hand to open up at a speed that they would not be comfortable with. Is there anything the United States, Europe and much of the developed world can do, any levers they can pull to really ramp up the pressure on China? Well, actually, what Trump is doing now is ramping up the pressure on China. But... The thing is that if you actually talk to the Chinese, and if you think to Liu He's speech at Davos, he argued that the world will be surprised by China's opening up this year. So what they have in mind, and they will be drumming uh, or beating the drum really loudly on this one, is opening up with respect to getting foreign money in and allowing greater access with presumably fewer restrictions okay, well, on, on, on foreign because investment. That's okay. So they want money to come in and they want it to come into their banking sector and everywhere else. Uh, how much do you expect them to really follow through with this protection of intellectual property uh, and just sort of other uh, measures that would make it palatable for foreign investment? On paper, they will probably go quite far. Right, in practice and reality, um, I remain a bit more skeptical because when I look at everything else that's going on in the economy, in particular, let's say, at the buildup of this great internet firewall and the requirements for servers to be located in China and all of that doesn't you know, certainly leave me with a particular sense of comfort. Yeah. So what's interesting is that, yes, they will sort of open up on paper more, but will foreign money go in? What they certainly won't be doing is relaxing the controls on outflows. Dana, you frame this as almost an economic battle of civilizations, but I just wonder whether we'll see a financial crisis in China before we actually see a massive trade war and the clash that you're kind of describing. Isn't it more likely that China has a significant economic downturn at some point in the next decade where they themselves have to take a look at their own system and question the longevity of it? There has already actually been a very substantial growth slowdown in China. If we look at the rates China was growing before the financial crisis, it's now half of those rates, even on their official numbers, on the numbers that uh, I've calculated since 2005, yeah. uh, growth has certainly more than halved. So they're definitely dealing with having to find a new model. And I'd say the next couple of years are make or break. And I would put 30% probability on make and 70% on break. But what has happened in the last couple of years give them, gives them a little bit more leeway than, let's say, I thought they would have if you had talked to me as your colleagues did, let's say, yeah. a year ago. Well, uh, Diana, I want to talk about what you said with respect to this being a big financial markets risk. Talk about the transmission mechanism. When do uh, markets start to care and reflect this? And are there specific sectors uh, that we're going to see fall out of bed as uh, trade war talks continue? 
Well, actually, if we are looking at a type of event that is going to be commensurate to what happened during the global financial crisis, i.e. something which undermines the structure of the global economy, not, we're not talking just about a 20% fall in equity prices, which you know is negative but doesn't have the same profound impact. Right. What we need to look at is geopolitical risk. Over the next three to five years, I would say that will be the source. No one cares. We've had plenty of geopolitical risk. What do you they call the Italian election? What do you call what's going on in Washington, <laughs> D.C.? They might not care until they'll have to. So there isn't China's financial system implosion. That's unlikely to be a source of global financial risk in the next two to three years. By implosion, I mean, you know, the, the system unraveling. Uh, if I have to look at what could be the source of a real shakeout that undermines the structure, it is geopolitical risk and it is very much uh, related to what China has in mind. So where's the flashpoint? Where in the world? Asia. Look, so, so what happens? Paint, paint, paint the picture. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. What happens? Um, that's one area where I have made it a rule not to, not to... Uh, Jonathan, she's not going to give it to, to us, is she? <laughs> not to be on, uh, on record, unfortunately. You're concerned about the flashpoint between North Korea or are you concerned about the economic dominance in China in the region and the testing of that dominance by America? I'm Which concerned one? as to what China has in mind in terms of establishing its leading role in Asia. Yes. Economically uh, but or I from also a military perspective? Just say I, I was born in Bulgaria and I lived under communism. So, um, yes, I probably have outdated fears and worries. Actually, maybe not. Um, so just uh, moving on, is the noise in Washington, D.C. just that? Is that sort of absolutely irrelevant when it comes to uh, sort of moving the needle at a geopolitical risk standpoint? No, not at all. I mean, Washington is really keen on and we're likely to see aggressive action because the only thing that stopped Trump last year was the expectation that the Chinese might help with North Korea. But since then, Trump realized that even if they wanted to, actually China can't do much at this stage. Uh, and in fact, this is one geopolitical risk that I expect to recede North yeah. Korea, in particular after the meeting, which both sides have an incentive to present a positive outcome from. Diana Choileva, she is an Odo Economics Chief Economist and she joins us here in New York. Diana, thank you very much. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Pim Fox, along with my colleague and co-host Lisa Abramowitz. Shares of Facebook right now, they are down a little bit more than uh, $2.80, down a little bit more than 1.5%. Here to tell us about the company, about the stock, and about the controversy surrounding personal uh, information is James Chalkmock. He is an equity analyst for Monas, Crespi, and Hart and Company. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. James, uh, let's uh, look at the investment thesis first. The other headlines, we know the Federal Trade Commission investigating the use of and the access to personal data. What's the investment thesis from a stock perspective? Right. I think you have to look at this both short term and long term. In the short term, it's going to be 
painful and it's going to be choppy. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because the company is going to be the scapegoat of regulators as they crack down on it to make an example of not just of Facebook, but of big cap tech. Uh, but as you look at the longer term, I think that's where you do see a, a continued silver lining here where they're able to uh, really have unmatched scale with the exception of Google. Uh, and when you look at the new regulations on privacy taking place overseas, it actually helps them uh, by threatening uh, or limiting uh, new entrants to the market and making the incumbents uh, increasingly the establishment. So longer term, I think that they're going to be just fine. Uh, but in the short term, it's definitely choppy waters. All right. So long term, you got a company that's doing over $40 billion in sales and puts nearly $20 billion of that to the bottom line, correct? Correct. Okay. Does it matter how Facebook responds to this controversy in order to keep the advertisers who are filling their coffers with that $40 billion worth of money? Absolutely. I mean, it, it matters in the sense that what is the pace uh, of dollars flowing to Facebook? Uh, it's not going to change if dollars flow to Facebook because there's really no choice because you only have Google and Facebook uh, that have uh, the, the kind of scale to reach a worldwide audience. You know, there's, there's no exceptions there. Uh, but the pace is certainly in question because if there is any curtailment in engagement, any fears around it, uh, you know, uh, privacy concerns that cause uh, dips in uh, content uh, kind of generation on the platform uh, and consumption of third-party content, then that will sway uh, the pace of ad dollars moving toward the company. Does it bring into question the current management skills at Facebook, whether it is Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I, I don't really see it as uh, skills in... Uh, uh, you know, in the in the traditional sense, it's more um, how do they respond in a way that appeases at least some factions of the comp of the uh, of the constituencies that are scrutinizing the company. And unfortunately, I think that they face a catch twenty two right now, which is why they've been so slow in respond in responding because they have uh, in a in a very uncanny way managed uh, to, uh, to receive scrutiny from not only both sides of the political spectrum, but both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, so there's really little that they can do or say, I think, uh, that can remedy uh, the current kind of uh, concerns around the business. All right, let me just push back a second here because I'm specifically referencing Alex Stamos. He's the chief mm -hmm. information security officer for Facebook. In an article in the New York Times, he is described as the person that urged more disclosure over Russian activity on Facebook. According to the story, he got a lot of pushback from those that are described as being more interested in how much money is made than whether privacy is protected. He's scheduled to leave the company in August. That can't be a good management image. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the issue is around perceptions. There's a, a, there's a issue of perception around the, the lack of candor uh, from Facebook. There's a issue of perception around uh, their willingness or proactively uh, not sharing information. And then there's uh, perception issues around uh, them arguing semantics where they're you know, arguing the traditional definition of data breach. You know, it's like arguing what the definition of is is. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I think transparency 
is their friend and over transparency is their best friend right now uh this you mentioned Google uh, as the other uh, as one of the other because of course there's Twitter uh, there are other social media mm-hmm. platforms. Uh, there's a report that uh, Google's head of their YouTube operation is looking to farm out oversight to Wikipedia right. for the veracity and the truthfulness of the videos that are posted on YouTube. Do you have any? Uh, thoughts about that yeah i think that's a smart move because wikipedia naturally comes with the checks and balances uh you know there's a a core constituent group of people that um you know uh, that that police uh wikipedia obviously there are discrepancies here and there but uh, i think that that self-policing uh from wikipedia is really second to none yeah, but how do you know who the people are behind those self-policing activities? And indeed, according to the people at Wikipedia, they only found out about this effort on the part of Google mm-hmm. and YouTube because of a discussion at South by Southwest by the CEO who runs <laughs> YouTube. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at here is the the quality of the management and the experience of the management. If you were talking about this in in companies such as the oil industry or the airline industry or the chemical, you know, what wouldn't you get a lot more consternation on the part of investors that say, "Wait a minute, this is not the this is not top notch management," or maybe it is. Yeah, I think it's 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 not the talent of the management as much as it is um, kind of the uncharted territory, you know, for all of them. Uh, and I think that they're, uh, you know, error on the side of being defensive and, and reactive rather than proactive uh, in, in trying to stay in front of the story. Because in every case that we've seen, you know, the, 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 the questionable content on YouTube and, and now all of Facebook's issues, it's been completely reactive. And the, and the companies, uh, quite frankly, are not um, uh, recognizing uh, the, the, the concerns and debate that's happening in the public sphere. And, and I think, uh, you know, what I was just talking about before, uh, you know, I was on with you was uh, the fact that a lot of these management teams and CEOs haven't uh, you know, been, uh, you know, candid uh, with uh, uh, real interviews and, and trying to answer the tough questions and, and trying to, uh, you know, stay or, or engage in uh, discussions that are off script. So, right. And, 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 and unfortunately, that may come in the form of uh, Senate hearings. Well, well, that, that's where my next question was going to be, because the invitation on the part of the U.S. Election Commission uh, to testify uh, being made public for the heads of Twitter, uh, Google, as well as uh, Facebook, uh, that becomes a uh, public airing of grievance. And as you just described, it is about perception rather mm-hmm. than about fact, particularly uh, when you're being asked questions by people who may or may not have a specific agenda. Right, exactly. And, and I think actually it could be a blessing in disguise because if they are forthright uh, in, in that public sphere, uh, I think that they can win a lot of uh, you know, points uh, from the public and as well as regulators in, in, in the, based off of the degree of candor uh, that they exhibit. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens here. I mean, a lot of, uh, I talk about perceptions because uh, what Facebook is facing right now uh, is, is nothing new. Companies uh, have used Facebook in, in this way 
uh, in the way that you know we're seeing with Cambridge Analytica. Right, uh, but those are companies versus foreign powers, right? I mean, you, I mean, is it worth? Maybe it's not worth making the distinction, but don't you think it's a, a distinction between whether it's the Russian government or Russian state actors versus companies trying to get you to buy a product? Yeah, but at the end of the day, it boils down to privacy, though, uh, and and, okay. and 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 who and how uh, uh, companies or foreign agents are able to utilize uh, profiles in a way to develop psychological profiles of people, and obviously businesses want to influence as well as I mean, I, I mean, you if if you want to, you know, change behavior, right. um, you know, Facebook's the best way to do it. So Thanks very much. Yeah. We got to uh, we got to run, but I want to thank you very much, uh, James uh, Chalkmock, uh, equity analyst at Monas Crespi and Hart. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.